a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Let us revel in wrong think. Oh, there is so much to talk about today. And, and I want to just specify, before I dive in here, when I say there's something to talk about, I don't mean there is so much for us to complain about today. There is so much for us to cry over and to lay blame on. No. I actually, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on that, uh, that is disturbing. No doubt about it. I actually read something over the weekend. I, I've been debating if I want to share some excerpts from it, only because... It, uh, it 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 paints a not super uh, it, it paints a, a less than uh, than optimistic picture of where we stand, the crossroads where we are right now in our nation's history. So I'm going to think about it. I'm going to contemplate if I want to share some excerpts of this. Uh, the the bottom line is. Look, we we live in interesting times. You've heard me talk about fourth turnings, and the crisis is always a hallmark of a fourth turning. That's where we are today. This has potential to be the biggest crisis, perhaps in human history. And I don't say that to, to make you feel like, oh, well, great, then it's all hopeless. Let's just stick our heads in the oven and turn the gas on and get it over with. No, no. Uh, what it means is... We may have greater challenges before us, but I I believe that the corollary to that is that uh, there are greater heights that we will reach individually and as humanity because of those difficulties. If if you never heard the the podcast Stranger Than Fiction, this is my friend Ralph DeLugas, who is he is a mild mannered scientist and machinist by day, but uh, the guy is a diehard truth seeker in every spare moment of his busy life. And he hosts a podcast. You can access it on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Uh, it, it is so worth your time. It, basically, Ralph spends a lot of time examining that, that gray area, that, that crossroads where faith and science intersect. See, and for some piece of people right there, they're going to be like, well, now, Brian, faith and science can never intersect. They are on totally different trajectories. I disagree. And if you ever listened to Ralph, you would find that, whoa, there's some interesting crossover there. But one of the things that Ralph points out is as difficult or as intimidating as this time may be. I believe that there there will come a time, maybe it'll be far in the future. Somewhere in the halls of eternity. I think you and I are going to rejoice that we were here. That we were, we were among the, the few who were able to experience the trials and triumphs that lie ahead of us. And I know that sounds, you know, pretty metaphysical. Wow, far out, man. But I guess what I'm getting at is the stuff that's going on, I believe there is a bigger purpose. I believe that there, there, is, there is order to the universe that is a lot less malevolent than you may have been led to believe. 
And with that in mind, that means that uh, that you and I have some very specific things on an individual basis we can and should do to be sources of light, to be sources of encouragement, to be sources of strength for those things that are good, noble, worth defending. And I know it seems overwhelming. The adversary wants us to believe there's no way you can prevail. I have all power here. But I don't think that's true. So in looking at things, uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to examine some hard topics, some hard situations. But we're also going to uh, revel in wrong think and rejoice in the fact that you and I still have freedom to choose how we will respond. And however intimidating the future may be. I plan on meeting it on my own terms. Now, that doesn't mean I have control over the universe. I don't. But I have control over how I respond to my circumstances, which means I will be meeting the future on my own terms. My uh, my biological father actually sent me an article earlier today, and I, and I encountered a word that I have not seen in a long time, like since I was in, in graduate school. The word is interregnum. And, and it's a fancy word. If you want to start sprinkling it through your vocabulary, people are going to be impressed, probably offer you lots of money and, you know, ask you to hang out with them or not. <laughs> but in a, <coughs> excuse me, in a nutshell, interregnum refers to that period of time between when a monarch dies and when his successor is coronated. And you look back through history, particularly through European history, there have been uh, different interregnums in which the king is gone. And the question that weighs on people's minds, what is going to happen? What can we expect when the new king takes the throne? Now, tell me you don't have kind of a sense of that uh, taking place today, right? I know the media is telling us, well, you know, of course, uh, we've, we've got this all decided. We've called it. Therefore, it is reality. And they would really love it if we play along with their Muppet show. But I'm still kind of holding back as far as, yeah, I uh, when, when the election has been certified, when the electors have actually cast their votes and it's all official, sure. But until then, I'm not going to play pretend with you. If that makes me a bad person, then then so be it. But I just thought that uh, this this interregnum idea was was very... Uh, well, it, it, it denotes the uncertainty that we face. And the author of this piece, I think Chris Martinson is the one who wrote this piece, says we're in between things. It's an uncomfortable place. We're transitioning from an old story into a new one that has people feeling anxious. And by the way, I don't believe that that is necessarily a purely political transition. But basically, the easy times are over, a period of disruption has begun, and it might be years or even decades before things really settle into a new equilibrium of sorts. By the way, that is part and parcel of how a fourth turning takes place. It takes years for the dust to settle. It takes years for the, for the skies to clear and for springtime to arrive. And things look very, very different on the other side of that turning. So there's a lot of demoralizing vibe out there right now. And this, too, is part of a fourth turning. 
basically the institutions, the things we counted on, stuff that seemed as solid as stone beneath our feet, turns out to be spongy as jello. And people become frustrated and angry and bitter, especially if they sense that they're on the losing side of whatever it is they're trying to preserve. So the author of this piece says, look, if you're demoralized right now, there's nothing wrong with you. But there is definitely something wrong with the larger situation. So it's not your imagination and you're not just being a sore loser. He says, if you know someone who's demoralized, don't try to fix them by helping them fit back into their old lives, old lives better. He says the problem isn't with their ability to adapt. The problem is they're already adapting to what is coming. They're ahead of the curve, not behind it. They just see the new curve before you do. And with that critical framing for the word demoralization, he says, now we're going to go a little bit deeper. You're going to learn another word, an important term relating to demoralization. It's called zozobra. It describes a potent sensation one might experience during an interregnum, especially if demoralization is in play. That's the word for that overwhelming anxiety that so many are feeling. Zozobra. Ever had the feeling you can't make sense of what's happening? One moment, everything seems normal. Then suddenly the frame shifts to reveal a world on fire, struggling with pandemic, recession, climate change, and political upheaval. Well, the word zozobra is an ordinary Spanish term for anxiety, but with connotations that call to mind the wobbling of a ship about to capsize. So if you're looking around and you're not seeing, well, it's an early winter day, but rather you're seeing a, a, an alarming moment of converging historical catastrophes, you're not alone. The conclusion that the author comes to, and I thought this was really cool. If you're feeling nervous, angry, or fearful, congratulations. There's nothing at all wrong with you. In fact, your senses are operating normally and your cognition is on the mark. You are having an adjustment reaction because your cognitive map has a better grasp on reality than your culture. And Zozobra is par for the course. The most valuable part of naming and understanding these things is that they lose their ability to paralyze with dread. So, yeah, there's a there's a reset coming. And I don't know if it's controlled necessarily by the global elite, but it remains to be seen right now. The author says you need to make a choice. You can either actively shape your future or wait to be shaped by it. He says, I'm all about controlling what I can and leaving the rest behind. I plan to meet the future on my terms. Will you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, thank you for making me a part of uh, your day or at least your quest for truth. I don't expect that everybody listens every day, although in my mind's eye, I kind of have this image of, I don't know, people huddling around their favorite portable electronic device and, you know, kind of like families used to gather around the radio, right? Waiting for little orphan Annie, only in this case, waiting for... uh, for a good old Brian to come on here and hold forth on what's happening and <laughs> try to make sense of it all. But I really do appreciate with all the choices you have that you would would include this in your daily intellectual diet. So to that end, I want to make it worth your while. You're ready for some good news. 
I know there's not a lot going around, but Carrie McDonald has a great article published last Friday on the uh, Foundation for Economic Education's website. So it's been a hard year, right? Businesses are struggling. Individuals are struggling. We're trying to deal with lockdown drama and political drama. But did you realize entrepreneurship is accelerating at the fastest rate in decades during this pandemic? It's almost like when you give us a challenge, we tend to rise to the occasion, or at least the entrepreneurs tend to rise to the occasion. Carrie McDonald says as officials in many areas impose new pandemic lockdowns and restrictions going into the holiday season, things can seem bleak. Depression rates are up. People are fleeing cities in droves. Elected leaders regularly violate their own orders. And fraud is rampant in the government's COVID-19 stimulus programs. And so she says it's understandable to feel frustration and despair. But she points out that more Americans are pushing past the grimness to create and invent during this challenging time. Entrepreneurship continues to soar during the pandemic as displaced dreamers and imaginative doers spot new opportunities and build new businesses at a record pace. In fact, this may be one of the few 2020 bright spots. This past week, the Wall Street Journal reported that entrepreneurship during the pandemic is accelerating. And there are several metrics that point to this growth, including the number of people applying for tax identification numbers. The journal cites U.S. Census Bureau data revealing that applications by small businesses rose nearly one-third between January and September compared to the previous year. In particular, applications skyrocketed between July and September, rising 33, I mean, that 77 percent from the previous quarter. That's the biggest quarterly increase in 16 years of tracking this data. And she says the report reinforces the trend toward entrepreneurship during the pandemic that the Wall Street Journal first highlighted last month, stating then Americans are starting new businesses at the fastest rate in more than a decade. Many of the individuals currently leaping into entrepreneurship are workers whose businesses were shut down by government edict and who experienced associated layoffs and pay cuts. According to this week's journal article, to adapt to the pandemic and the job loss it unleashed, more Americans are becoming their own bosses, setting up tiny businesses to work as traveling hairstylists, in-home personal trainers, boutique mask designers, and chefs. A man in Maryland started a mobile car washing business. New needs mean new business opportunities. Is that not the essence of entrepreneurship? She says other entrepreneurs are identifying fresh needs and unmet demand during the pandemic and are inventing new technologies as a direct result of this unprecedented experiment, experience. Rather. She says the Foundation for Economic Education just concluded its week-long Entrepreneur Week series of free webinars aimed at inspiring teenagers and young adults to be entrepreneurial. One of the panelists was a Stanford University senior named Antonia Hellman, who, along with her brother Ethan, recently founded Toucan, a virtual events and social plot platform, as an immediate response to the pandemic shutdowns. According to Hellman, Toucan is a platform that is designed to allow people to have more human interactions at their virtual events. She says, this started after my brother, who's a sophomore at Stanford, and I got sent home from school, and we realized that the default video conferencing tools were simply not good enough to keep communities together. We were not only physically isolated from all of our friends, but our connection wasn't facilitated at all by these existing tools. The default was to hop on a Zoom call. 
after we had a couple of events where 20 to 30 people were all in their little squares and they all turned off their microphones and cameras and the conversation just died, we realized that we needed a different solution that would actually allow people to have fun interactions virtually. That way we could keep those communities together. So the two sat down at their kitchen table and plotted the development of Toucan, which uses advanced technology to closely replicate human interactions virtually. And apparently it launches sometime this week. Another panelist at this week's webinar series was John Chisholm, longtime entrepreneur, investor, and author of Unleash Your Inner Company, 10 Steps to Discover, Launch, and Scale Your Ideal Business. In his book's newly released paperback edition, Chisholm says that pan- the pandemic is a great time to start a new business, and he offers tips for starting a company during times of crisis. Now, most importantly, crises create new needs. During the 2020 COVID-19 virus crisis, people needed to connect with family and friends despite an inability to travel, exercise despite gym closures, get food and supplies delivered, work remotely, and much more. Some of these new needs ended with the lockdowns. Others will continue indefinitely. You have to assess not only which needs you can best serve, but also, since those needs will require investment by you, how long they will last. And assessing this requires talking to many people, weighing much data, and taking some risk. But the longer you keep asking questions, the clearer the picture becomes. Kerry McDonald says, as we enter the final weeks of a very difficult year and encounter new lockdowns and restrictions, it seems that 2020 can offer little to celebrate. Yet the COVID-19 pandemic has triggered a burst of entrepreneurial ambition, leading to new businesses, new inventions, and new pathways of prosperity for many Americans. The creativity, ingenuity, and determination to take risks and persevere that this year's entrepreneurs have demonstrated can be a beacon for all of us and a reminder that our entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. I like this. I like the fact that uh, it's, it shows not only it can be done, but it's, it's a good thing. It's, an, it's a noble way to use your time and your efforts. Now, I had the opportunity this year to, to grab that entrepreneurial rope as it swung by. And I'm not going to lie, it's a little bit scary. There's a lot more security and there's a lot more of a sense of safety when you've got, uh, you know, one nice paycheck or a couple nice paychecks a month to count on. And and that's, you know, how you do business. It's a much different thing when you have to hustle and you have to, you know, diversify and, and create, you know, basically build your own company, create multiple streams of income to, to create a customer base. But there's a freedom that comes with it as well. And for the first time in my life, I really understand why those who I know who've gone into business for themselves say I could never go back. Yeah, there's risk there. You get the sense sometimes you're walking a tightrope and there is no safety net underneath you. And that, that feeling of discomfort, I don't think ever truly goes away. But there comes a point where it is overshadowed or at least it's it's balanced and maybe um, outdone by the sense of possibilities. Take that for what it's worth. I'm a noob at this, so I'm, I'm not the guy to be giving anybody business advice. I'm just saying it's a remarkable feeling. And something that uh, if, if you're feeling helpless and you're feeling like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm the whims of, of a cruel universe and fate is tossing me to and fro. 
maybe it's time to sit back and reflect on where is an area where I could create value? What skills do I have? What need do I see that that isn't being met? And run with it. There are a lot of good folks out there who specialize in helping people find that uh, entrepreneurial spirit and tap into it. Two of my favorites are Kurt Mercadante and uh, T.K. Coleman. A quick Google of either one of their names will lead you to a treasure trove of great information from people who really have that vision. When we come back, we're going to talk about how money has become a weapon of mass destruction and control. What? After we were just talking about making money? Yes, yes. You're definitely going to want to hear this. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Last Friday, I had the opportunity to sit down and and have lunch with a friend. And one of the topics that came up was we discussed our mutual admiration and respect for a writer by the name of Paul Rosenberg. Now, you've heard me share a lot of Paul's information on this show over the years. And I think it's probably been eight years or more since I first discovered this amazing writer. I subscribe to his weekly emails, which you can get at uh, freemansperspective.com. But I really like his take because he tackles topics that really help you better understand the world. And he doesn't do it in a way that sounds like, yes, I am lecturing from this ivory tower. And and uh, let me just uh, throw baskets full of my wisdom down below to, to you unwashed people. It's uh, this is not like uh, what Aristophanes uh, play the clouds, right, where he's making fun of Socrates, who lives in that rarefied air up there with the clouds, you know, just dispensing wisdom to the unwashed masses below. But when Paul Rosenberg writes about something, I like to give it a look. I like to see what does he have to say on this. And when I saw this headline, money is a weapon of mass destruction. Well, let's just say it piqued my curiosity. He says money wasn't always our enemy, of course. He says I'm old enough that I knew people who were alive before it was weaponized. But modern money dollars and euros and so on are so destructive that they're threatening not just individuals, but Western civilization itself. Now, he says, if that sounds a bit over the top, please read on before we're done. He says, I think I'll convince you otherwise. He says, I call free fiat currency a weapon of mass destruction because it has caused far more widespread damage than chemical weapons ever have and has assuredly destroyed more human potential than even nuclear weapons. The nuke destroys horrifyingly, but rarely. Fiat money destroys minute by minute, day by day, over multiple decades, and in shocking proportions. So how does money destroy? This is where we're all going to get a little bit of an education. Paul Rosenberg says how money destroys is not immediately obvious. We grow up learning to count it and spend it, then to make it, but few of us ever learn anything more about it, even in university-level programs. Fundamentally, Fiat currencies destroy because they hijack human will on a massive scale. Here's how it happens. Money, currency, is one half of every commercial transaction. And those transactions involve nearly every aspect of every life in the Western world, from birth 
to death. That's immense scope. Next, fiat currency is created at roughly zero cost by governments and the friends of governments. Next, money is used to buy all the necessities of life, thus it is deeply and inherently motivating to more or less every human on the planet. And finally, because of the above, anyone creating new currency units can motivate millions of human beings powerfully, on demand, and at almost no cost. He says, think about this. People work for money, spending their lifetimes trying to find new and better ways to get it. They sweat from sun to sun for it. The people who create new currency units, however, can make those millions of people clamor for their new dollars, thereby directing oceans of desperation and energy as if by an invisible hand. Yes, that's a despicable position of advantage, but it's more dangerous than just that. The lords of fiat have directed these oceans of energy and despair in horrific decisions. He says, when you examine the motivations thrust on us by fiat currency, you see an overarching goal to bring us back to serfdom. How much of that is intentional and how much accidental, I can't say. But he says it is the overall direction. Consider what we see after a century of fiat currency dominance. Never before have so many people worked so hard to display the illusion of prosperity while remaining so deeply and precariously in debt. Now, he says, I'm not just talking about poor people here. I'm talking about middle class and upper middle class people all across the West. And it's important to see that it really was fiat currency that brought us here. Consider credit reports rigidly controlling the flow of new dollars to workers require them to maintain high levels of debt. Needless to say, the creators of currency units are deeply involved with this process. Don't believe him? How many people do you know who will not have a credit card? They never have a credit card, right? They've, they've gone through Financial Peace University with Dave Ramsey. They cut up their credit cards. They're not going to renew them. What does their credit report look like? Well, it may be non-existent, or it may be very, very poor. Why? Because they haven't maintained credit. They haven't been borrowing and borrowing money. Those who have a really good, high credit score, yeah, they may be paying their bills on time, but the bottom line is, to get that high score, they have to borrow and keep borrowing. Next, he says, operators close to the currency leaders get new currency in the form of loans that motivate armies of workers to build new skyscrapers for them. Merely by staying in the good graces of the fiat creators, stirring up the anthill to their benefit is easy. He says the lords of fiat maintaining loans for their clients can dictate the actions of those clients. That's the primary function of interlocking boards of directors, for example, and it also helps to explain some notable recent events. He says scientific research has been monopolized by the state and its myriad agencies. What does that mean? Well, it means the, <laughs> excuse me, the investors are perpetually begging for money that is created with a keystroke and slaving to make the grantors happy. Science then has been hijacked for free. And again, this explains some recent events. This is one of the worst ones. Wars have become economically painless. Even World War II required rationing and suffering from the populace. Not so these days. All the necessary money is created with a keystroke. And that associated debt is just added to a pile that's fairly well ignored. Thus, we have pointless 20 years, 20 year wars, rather, and a D.C. swamp that perpetuates them. 
And finally, he says welfare has become economically painless. Politicians have been able to spend rivers of money without consequence. The state then became a magic entity that could do whatever it wanted, whenever it wanted. And assuredly, hundreds of millions of people believe this is so. As a result, people stopped taking responsibility for themselves, it's easier that way, and yielded their will to the magic state, and then defended their choice. So he says, trusting that you get the point, I'll stop here. At the end of this line, we see most people focusing only on short-term economic concerns, ignoring or evading the long-term, and even hoping they'll die before the consequences arrive. And yes, he says, that is the fault of fiat currency. So what now? Well, he says, ultimately, the great crime of fiat currency is that it steals the will of millions of people at once. So we get out of this trap by reasserting our will. Oddly enough, a serious number of us have a pretty good idea of how to exit this particular matrix. And the exit, of course, is to use decentralized money. Now, if you want to use gold and silver, wonderful, but use it. Use it to buy and sell on a daily basis. If you don't, the ability of the fiat overlords to motivate everyone on demand and for free remains unchanged. The more potent choice is Bitcoin and a few other good cryptos. This is decentralized, mathematically certain, censorship-resistant money, and it's transferable worldwide for a trivial amount. All that really stands against it is fear. Now, he says, please bear in mind, I'm not interested in justice for the abuses done to us. That leads to the darkening of our characters. It isn't worth it. On top of that, we have the time and energy for it. We can escape our chains or we can seek, we can seek vengeance. But he says, we don't have time for both. So there it is. Fiat currency has softened, redirected, and abused the wills of millions of people. It has drawn Western civilization, even with its flaws, the most benevolent and constructive in human history, to the breaking point. More or less, all institutions within this civilization oppose its continuance. So the bottom line is, if you want to change this, you'll have to act. Jump into Bitcoin and crypto or start using gold and silver in daily commerce. For extra credit, you can start homeschooling or helping people who do. He says, wide and approved is the way that led us downward to serfdom. Narrow and despised is the way leading upward to the reclamation of will and to the liberation that follows. Make a move. I don't know if that, uh, if that scares you, if it makes you uncomfortable. It's probably a good thing if it does, because that means that it's, it's at least got you thinking. It didn't just bounce off, you know, your, your mental armor plating. I think this is wise from another standpoint, and that is we are seeing a very decided move toward a cashless society. I think that uh, within, uh, well, within our lifetime, certainly, and maybe within the very near future, we're going to see a devaluation of the dollar and moves towards some kind of digital currency controlled by government, of course, in which every single purchase you make, every dime you spend will be accounted for, taxed, tracked. And here's the scary part. Subject to being shut off, depending on whether or not you are being a good little boy or girl. I know it sounds fantastical. Electronic fascism always does. But ask yourself, would it be plausible? You know cancel culture's in full swing. If uh, the cancelers got their hands on money or the control of money, why would they not use that as a lever for control? This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, yeah, I, I do keep one eye on uh, some of the, uh, you know, election maneuvering lawsuits being filed, you know, and attorneys, you know, doing their thing, challenging the the, the back and forth with uh, not just the media and politicians, but it's been very interesting to watch the reactions of uh, different people on Facebook, for instance. I've got a friend who I, I, I deeply respect. I really think that uh, this this guy may be one of the smartest people that I know, and he is uh, adamant. If you think that uh, there is, uh, you know, systemic corruption, and that's the reason why Trump didn't get reelected, he says, you know, um, go for a walk, clear your head. And he says, and take the step maybe of uh, of uh, unfriending me before we have to have words. And I think, wow, that's a that's a pretty hard stance. But obviously he feels strongly about it. And I've seen others, you know, who've, who've tried to say, well, it's it's not a matter of uh, uh there's any credibility in fact the news media has been telling us oh there's nothing you know there's nothing trump's lawyers the the people who are challenging these things nobody has presented anything that uh, that in any way would indicate that uh, the, the the election was compromised but again that's the news media talking to us and here's the thing i I am less concerned about the thought that, yes, Trump has to win. He has to win or everything is lost. I'm much more concerned with if the system is capable of being gamed, as it appears it might be. And I want this to be sorted out. I'll I'll accept whatever is found out, but I want it to have a fair hearing. I want there to be serious inquiry made into whether or not there was manipulation or fraud or corruption that went into shaping the results of this election. Because if that is the case, here's what's at stake. As voters, we have a very tenuous grasp and and, uh, ability to affect government, or at least to compel some degree of accountability on the part of those who are acting within government positions. And if the system can be gamed at will, by those who hold positions of of authority or who have access to positions of power. Ooh, we've got a problem and a big one at that. So I'm hoping beyond hope that uh, that that's not the case, because if that is the case, then essentially those in power can do whatever they want with absolute assurance that, yeah, 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 we'll let the voters play along like, oh, yeah, you can vote. But it's just kind of a pressure release valve. It accomplishes nothing. There is no integrity to the process. Now, again, I'm saying if. And plus, I have to keep in mind, and and this is, again, not that I not that I'm trying to tell you Donald Trump is the answer to our prayers. But I think most of us can remember the nonstop efforts of politicians and mass media, uh, first of all, to prevent Trump from ever getting elected in the first place. I mean, I was watching mass media pretty regularly because we had a TV set there in the radio studio, and I watched very closely through the election campaign of 2016. I watched the nightly news, and it was so blatantly slanted. I mean, it, it, was so, it could not have been more clear how against the election of Donald Trump they were and how shocked they were when he actually got elected. Maybe remember some of the long faces, some of the disbelief. 
They pulled the classic uh, classic principal Skinner. Why? Is it possible that I'm the one who's out of touch? No, no, it must be the voters. And so they doubled down. And then for the next four years, did everything in their power, media and politicians, to try to prevent Trump, not to prevent Trump from being elected, but rather to remove him from office. So with all of that effort, with all of that vitriol, if someone like me, who did not vote for Trump in 2016, who really didn't find anything particularly redeeming about him other than the fact that, well, at least he's not Hillary Clinton, thank goodness, if I can recognize that uh, the deck was stacked against him, then I think anybody could pretty much pick that up. So why would we possibly think that these same folks who worked so hard, first of all, to prevent him from being elected and then to try to remove him from office, why would we ever think that they would try to steal an election or otherwise manipulate an election? There's a great article from Jim Cox on LewRockwell.com today. It's pretty short and sweet. He says, sure, the Democrats, the deep state, the military industrial complex, the deep state military industrial military industrial media complex, the powers that be or whatever term you prefer would never stoop so low as to steal an election. We all know that. But sure, they would sick the FBI and CIA on an opposition presidential candidate as they did in 2016. And sure, they would file false FISA applications as they did in 2016 and 2017, a total of four times. And sure, the FBI agents in charge of investigations would casually talk about keeping Trump out of office and having an insurance policy for such in their texts to one another in 2016. And sure, they would pressure the electors to change their votes from the winning candidate to theirs. And sure, they would entrap President-elect Donald Trump's choice for National Security Advisor Michael Lynn. And sure, in 2016, they, specifically the Clinton campaign and DNC, would pay for a phony dossier with the, chan- with the payment channeled to make it difficult to identify the payers through the Perkins Coy International Law Firm to Brit Christopher Steele, who in turn hired some Russian operatives to provide him with phony information with which to harass the new president in 2017. And sure, Hillary Clinton would arrange that dossier in order to provide cover for her having illegally deleted 30,000 plus subpoenaed emails. And sure, they, in this case, Jim Comey, would then inform the new president of this salacious dossier and then report to the head of the of the CIA, John Brennan, mission accomplished, who would in turn call CIA, call CNN rather with the news. So the dossier could now be in the news. And sure. Director Brennan would testify under a closed hearing to the House Intelligence Committee that he had that no, he had no hard evidence against Donald Trump while publicly claiming for his new employer and CNN's audience that, yes, he did have 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 hard evidence against him. And sure, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, repeatedly for months and months stated that he had hard evidence proving Trump colluded with the Russians but never did produce such evidence. And sure, they would appoint a special counsel to then investigate for 23 months and at a cost of $32 million, the new president with the intent of removal from office and possible criminal charges. And sure, they would prosecute despite the Justice Department dropping the charges some years earlier. Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign manager, but not Manafort's business partner. Democrat-connected Tony Podesta. 
And sure, they would place poll watchers at ridiculous distance from what they were supposed to be, you know, watching. And sure, they would block the view of interested citizens by placing large cardboard pieces on the windows of those same poll sites. And sure, they would publicly make a reference, hint, hint, of an election official's place of residence for doxing purposes and the name of the school her children attend so that thugs could harass them to get the official to change her vote on certifying the election in Wayne County, Michigan. But no, they would never, never stoop so low as to steal a presidential election. Perish the thought. I know, it, it's maybe it's a bit political for you, but... It does kind of paint an interesting picture. And again, you don't have to be a diehard Trump supporter to recognize that, yeah, every one of those instances that Jim Cox refers to, it's documented. It really happened. But the same people who are insisting, well, no, this legit, this election was legitimate, safest and most secure in the, uh, the history of America. Why, they would never mislead or misdirect us for their own purposes, right? I guess I come back to the idea that uh, if you really want to be a free individual, you've got to have a healthy sense of skepticism. And I'm not wed to the idea that, well, it's got to be Donald Trump who is in office because he's the one who's going to save us. Look, in many ways, he's been a better president than what I expected. And and I think one of my greatest, uh, one of the greatest areas where I feel appreciation for him is he has not expanded that imperial behavior of the U.S. making war on so many people around the world. He's largely kept it in check, and I think that's actually a very admirable thing. But I don't end my prayers in his name, and I don't think he's, he's the person who, on whom the, uh, the fate of the republic hangs. I do, however, think that this election... And the need to get somebody back in power who could be counted on to do the bidding of whatever you want to call it, the establishment, the military industrial media complex, blah, blah, blah. I think it's strong enough that, yeah, there are definitely people who would cut corners. And I'd like to see a full accounting of exactly how this election just happened to go their way, given all the work they put in over the last four and a half years. This is The Brian Hyde Show.